Welcome to National Disability Services Sector Development Podcast, which takes a look at the NDIS in action for service providers. My name is David Moody, and I am the Victorian State Manager of National Disability Services, the peak body for non-government disability service providers in Australia. If you've registered to be an NDIS provider, you will have signed the Declaration of Suitability, stating that you will abide by Australian consumer law. But what does that mean for you as a service provider? Well, fortunately, we have today with us two experts in the studio to explain Australian consumer law under the NDIS from both sides. We welcome Jonathan Tay, Principal at Russell Kennedy Lawyers, who has expertise in advising not-for-profit companies and assisting clients in the disability sector with their service agreements and issues arising from the NDIS rollout. Jonathan will share insights from the provider's perspective. We also welcome Jared Brody, CEO of the Consumer Action Law Centre, who has expertise in counselling, legal advice and representation supporting vulnerable Victorian consumers. Jared will share insights from the client's perspective. As always, we're also joined by NDS's very own NDIS Transition Advisor, Pascal Dreyer, who will explain what abiding by Australian consumer law means for service providers under the NDIS, and he'll provide some example scenarios. And don't forget, anything you hear referenced here today will be available in our show notes at nds.org.au forward slash sdp. Welcome all. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thanks, David. Sherrod, I wonder if we might begin with you by asking, could you give us a summary of the rights of people with disability? Well, under Australian consumer law, all consumers, whether they're purchasing you know, goods and services in the supermarket or under the NDIS, have a range of consumer rights. Those include not being lied to, providers shouldn't mislead or deceive or engage in misrepresentations. They should be taking advantage of people. There are also rights when it comes to contracts. For example, terms and conditions of contracts are regulated so as not to be unfair. And there are a range of consumer guarantees. And by those, I mean services provided with due care and skill or provided within a reasonable time frame, for example. So there are a range of rights under the Australian Consumer Law. And for the purpose of the NDIS, are we to interpret service agreements as being the equivalent of contracts for the purpose of providers engaging with their clients? Yeah, absolutely. A service agreement and a contract are interchangeable. Jonathan, I wonder if I might turn to you now and ask if you could tell us how disability service providers can work to ensure consumer rights are adhered to. What processes do you recommend they implement to support people with disability who are their clients? Happy to do so. I guess it's hopefully been drummed into uh, NDIA registered service providers the importance of having a service agreement in place and for that service agreement to comply with the terms of business uh, published by the NDIA. And I think whilst consumer law might seem scary and a new area, if you've at least taken steps to comply with those base requirements, you're already very well on the way Uh, to complying with the consumer law. And so I think if we use the model services agreement published by the NDIA as a base, then I think the main areas and pitfalls that we would want to be focusing on is firstly around the marketing material that uh, providers put out there in terms of touting for business and attracting clients. Um, The second area is around Uh, making sure that your sign-up process and the process that you use to get service agreements signed up uh, is 
carefully considered. And then thirdly, to make sure that when you actually uh, deliver the services that the part NDIS participant has signed up for, um, that you've got systems in place to make sure that you can record and, and be satisfied that you've actually delivered on what you say you've offered to deliver. Can I just check in with you there for a second, Jonathan? My understanding, and I could be wrong, is that service agreements are not mandatory to be signed between the participant on the one hand and the provider on the other, except in the case of specialist disability accommodation. Is that understanding correct? That is correct. But as, as a lawyer, I would encourage that good practice is to put in place service agreements, just because at the end of the day, when there are issues or when there are disputes, the most important document that you'll be referring to will be the service agreement. I do acknowledge that it is a challenge for our disability service providers to change that mindset. So obviously when we were working in a system which principally involved block funding, um, there was tended to be no necessity to have these agreements in place because you were ultimately paid by the, the government entity that was contracting and funding you. But under a consumer arrangement, um, it is certainly good practice, if not best practice, to have a service agreement in place. Okay. And Pascal, um, from your perspective as our NDIS Transition Advisor at National Disability Services, are these, you know, is the picture that the guy's painting pretty familiar to you in terms of what you're hearing from members about some of the challenges around service agreements and understanding their status and their implications for that contractual relationship? Certainly, David. I mean, I must say in, in our experience out on the road with providers, they are well versed on the requirement to have a service agreement in place. I think I think really where where they sort of struggle to understand how to work with clients appropriately is more in the marketing sense. Providers have never had to market their services before. It's a very new space for them. And I don't think that they've considered how they should be marketing their services and whether or not they are compliant with consumer law when they are marketing their services. There's a number of requirements around there that I think are really important to highlight. And certainly going back to the service agreements as well, while while providers are very well versed on, on the need to have a service agreement, I think what we forget to stress, and, and certainly it's something that, that we on the road do, but what, what we forget to stress is actually the importance of that service agreement being accessible to the client. And when we say that, it's it's to make sure that while you might have a legal document in place, it's probably best practice to have an easy English version of that so that, you know, if you're engaging with a client with an intellectual disability or or with someone who may have a decreased capacity to understand legal jargon, certainly it's really important that I think your consumer understands what you're selling them. And unless you're confident that they understand, I don't think you can hand over heart say that they've agreed to it with the full of their knowledge. Well, that segues nicely into my next question, this one for Jared and Jonathan. I wonder if each of you could provide us with at least one instance where you're aware that consumers' rights have been breached in the context of the NDIS, just so we can get a picture for what that might look like or has looked like, I should say. Well, I'm not sure I've got an example from the context of the NDIS. Um, it's probably quite new and hopefully providers are complying. But in other areas, we do see providers which have breached consumer law. So I'll give an example from another sector that changed quite significantly from previously being publicly funded to then being a contestable market with private providers. And that was around vocational training. So vocational training changed over a period of time and providers sort of touted for business, but they often did so in unethical and even unlawful ways, which included 
using uh, sales tactics like giving people free items up front to get them to sign up, inducements, if you like, a free laptop or a free something or other to get them to sign in a way which meant the person didn't really understand what they were signing up to. Or using sort of unsolicited sales processes, you know, going round door to door or doing it out on the streets where, again, in those environments, the consumer law does have an extra level of protection for consumers. um, And these providers were not necessarily complying with those requirements like cooling off periods and so on. And so I do think that that area of sign up and marketing is an area of risk. And and of course, the the other area in which vocational trainers, those providers regularly engaged in, I think there's been around four cases that the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission has taken against these providers was that they um, misled or misrepresented what they people were signing up to. So for example, you'll sign up to this course and it won't cost you anything, where in fact there was a fee arrangement. It was through a loan scheme and it wasn't very clear to the consumer. So those sort of unethical or misrepresenting what's going on is is where you'll find risk with any um, service consumer arrangement. Like Jared, our experience is that it is in other sectors that have moved many years ago to a consumer client focused models that we're really drawing experience on. So those ones that have been established and it's only now we're starting to see more litigation or more claims being made against providers about non-compliance with consumer law. So two examples drawing on experiences from other fields. The two areas that would come to mind would be, for example, complaints made against home care providers that have transitioned, as well as complaints being made against residential aged care providers for whether or not the service that's being delivered complies with the consumer law. Certainly from my perspective, we've been kept relatively busy advising clients in relation to services agreements. And I think one of the, the main areas of, uh, of risk that we've identified for clients that, that perhaps have used a commercial firm that doesn't have experience with consumer and NDIS law has been around the one-sided nature of service agreements. We haven't quite touched on the topic yet, but there's a whole area of consumer law that talks about unfair contract terms. And I'm sure Jared can elaborate on that, but where terms are one-sided and not reasonably necessary to protect the interests of the service provider, those terms can be held to be unenforceable. And so as tempting as it might be for service providers to include things like penalty interest clauses or or fines or, you know, late payment fees or indemnities or releases, you know, regardless of the fact that even the, you know, terms of business don't envisage many of those to be permitted, it doesn't cease to surprise me that there are service providers that are taking that one-sided approach and they're not recognising that we need to be very careful about consumer compliance. And it, it gets even worse if we then add the, for example, unconscionability law provisions. When we're dealing, as we say, with clients that have an intellectual disability, you know, it's going to be very difficult for you to be able to put hand on heart and say, yes, that person with an intellectual disability genuinely understood what the indemnity said after I gave them a simple contract and an easy English version of that contract. So what constitutes a contract which is on the level, which is fair income, which is appropriate in its clauses for a service provider to offer to a person with disability? And I include in that a person with not insignificant 
intellectual or cognitive disability mm. in this space. Mm. Well, as, as Jonathan said, the consumer law prohibits unfair contract terms. It doesn't set out a guide about what's fair. What it does is prohibit unfair contract terms. And unfair contract terms are ones where there are significant imbalances between the parties or the rights and obligations of the parties. And particularly, the provider doesn't have a legitimate interest to include the term. So I think a good example is cancellation fees. We often see service agreements in a range of industries that have very very high exit fees. If someone wants to cancel a contract, switch to a new, new provider, they can feel that they're stuck. They don't want to actually do that because there'll be a large fee that's applied by their existing provider. So the question is, will that exit fee be unfair or not? Now, uh, it's not a simple question to ask and there's no simple answer either. But the things you want to look at is, does the provider have a legitimate reason for charging an exit fee for that level? For example, they've suffered some loss because you are exiting the contract. They expect you to be there for another three months, but you're leaving early. So we can't get someone immediately to replace you. And there might be a little bit of a cost there. But that doesn't mean that the provider should be able to charge a very high fee that's going to outweigh any loss associated to them, that may be very well an unfair contract term. But the question of how much is too much is a function to be determined on its merits on the basis of each case. That's right. It will look to the particular circumstances and particularly what the level or amount of loss to the provider is from the consumer, in this case, exiting the contract early. So, Jonathan, do you agree with your learned friend there? or I generally do, but I also want to just remind everyone of the NDIA's guidance in the, the price guide because there is a fair bit of detail around when the NDIA thinks it's appropriate to charge for cancellation or no-show fees. And the NDIA in particular recognises that there are some classes of NDIS participants that are highly likely to cancel by virtue of the disability that they have. And therefore, it ought to be priced into or designed into the model that when you engage these clients, you almost have to expect that there will be no-shows at certain levels and that you need to do lots of other things to make sure that the participant attends and receives the services that they've asked for. I noticed you um, sort of pulled yourself up when you talked about pricing, pricing in the cancellation fee into the price that a provider can charge for the services and then moved to describing it as ensuring you design the service offering sales to accommodate the cancellation. I'm presuming that's because the cap price for services only contemplates a certain number of cancellations and therefore no amount of pricing in is going to overcome that problem. Yeah, that's right. And it does make it difficult for our, uh, certainly the disability clients that we're acting for to make sure that the service they're providing is financially sustainable for them. Pascal, would it be true to say that National Disability Services, through your good offices, is getting quite a number of concerns raised or has historically been getting concerns raised about the cancellation policy and how to make it work? So you're alluding to the fact, David, that the cancellation policy under the NDIS in itself is quite limiting and only really provides for uh, a particular type of support to charge a cancel, cancel... I mean, it's not a cancellation fee, it's just really is able to recover some associated costs in you know, in the fact when a participant does cancel. And look, we did early on receive quite a number of queries about this and certainly the cancellation policy probably doesn't sit well in the context of other services, given that other services are able to charge a cancellation fee and most services under the NDIS actually aren't. 
So, Jonathan, if I could ask you, what are some practical tips for disability service providers to ensure that they do, in fact, comply with consumer law? What are some processes that you think might assist them? And what does best practice look like in this area, if there is such a thing as best practice? So, David, I would encourage disability service providers to think the way large organisations have been in terms of providers, you know, consumer providers of goods and services. And perhaps you don't have to adopt all of the sophistication that they have, but if you have those ideas in mind, you can then scale them to your operations. Sophisticated, large consumer organisations will tend to have their websites prepared professionally, legally reviewed, content reviewed. They'll tend to have a lot of their sign-up processes reviewed by lawyers and they've got lots of quality assurance and systems in place to make sure that people don't deviate, so to speak, from the script. I certainly anticipate that the sign-up process is still probably one of the most likely areas that will result in complaints or litigation under the consumer law because when you have a support worker that's out there having trying to sign a client up, to a service agreement, taking them through the agreement, not necessarily being experts in describing the services agreement. I think there is a great risk in that process that they can explain things incorrectly or make misleading statements that might result in future liability. Can I just add to that? I totally agree with Jonathan about the way in which providers need to be thinking and running their business in much more of a consumer-focused way. I think a key example is about how they deal with complaints and having a a complaints policy that actually encourages feedback. You know, the best thing a provider can do is to know what consumers think about their service. And if there is a complaint, to sort of investigate it, not just to resolve it, but to investigate the cause of the complaint that may indicate some level of non-compliance with the law or some other issue that they could address to prevent the practices in the future. Is that If there's that culture in place of dealing with complaints effectively, you're going to have a business that's much more likely to comply with consumer law. Can I just go back to Jonathan, you were talking about the fact that large organisations in other sectors have their websites legally reviewed and go through quite a robust process in reviewing their compliance with consumer law. I suppose I just want to bring it back to the disability sector under the capped pricing framework, recognising that a lot of our members are actually struggling to make ends meet without that additional sort of oversight or getting in that additional expertise from law firms or such. Are you able to provide some more cost-effective mechanisms by which providers can ensure that they are compliant with consumer law? Not everyone will be able to afford it, and certainly at the moment that's not the first thing they're going to be looking at. Uh, The first thing people will be looking at is, is how can we make our services viable? So I wonder if you can sort of take us through some really practical on-the-ground stuff that providers can start doing now and and don't actually need a lot of cash to do. Yeah, if you could just tell us how people can avoid using your services. Yeah, no, I'm I'm happy happy to do myself out of a job. So if we take the nub of this issue is around the risk of engaging in misleading and deceptive conduct. That's the main nub. So it's basically where you're putting something on your website that is uh, not quite true in an attempt to convince a client that they should sign up for you. So I think this is where internally within a disability service provider, the program area is probably going to try and put its best foot forward and potentially say things that might be slightly 
more of a stretch than might be the truth. If you lack the external resources to review your marketing material, then I would suggest that you take advantage of your internal resources within your organisation. You would find someone from a different area from the program to critically review the material and they would be able to maybe think through if they were the participant receiving the services or if they were recommending the service to another person or obtaining the service on behalf of their child as a carer or as a nominee, whether or not they would rely on those statements and whether they would be unhappy, whether those statements could be used against the organisation if the service was not um, provided and they weren't happy in the future. Okay. Well, Jaron, I might turn to you now and ask what advice you have for clients, their carers and families to ensure their rights are being met. Yeah, I think that any time a consumer enters into an arrangement, they should ask as many questions as possible. You know, it's important to try and read the agreements, but the reality is we know that no one reads all the contracts in fine print. And so it's also important that you try and ask as many questions as possible to get a good understanding of what it is that you're signing up for. I think it's also important to be proactive if something is not to your liking or you're dissatisfied in some way and and raise that with your service provider. A good service provider will respond to a complaint and try and resolve it and also take steps to you know, fix any underlying issue that led to the problem. Uh, and that's probably the best thing you can do. If you're still dissatisfied, then you can think about what other complaint mechanisms there are available, like going to a, a disability services commissioner or the new safeguards commission. I suppose one of the things I'll be interested in, in seeing, Jared and Jonathan, is the extent to which in this um, world where people with disability are able to exercise choice in regards to the services that they access, how many will actually seek to complain and how many will simply actually take their business elsewhere. Are you seeing any trends in that space, either of you, in terms of, if you like, a downward trend in complaints because people are more comfortable just being able to say, you know what, I don't like what I'm getting, I'm taking myself off to somebody else? Oh, look, unfortunately, I think in every other sector that has been, I guess, deregulated or open up to consumer-directed market, we've actually seen an increase in consumer complaints, not a decrease. Yes, people do have a choice to move to another service provider, but it can be difficult to do that. It's time-consuming. It takes a lot of effort. You have to think up. You have to read websites. You have to find out a lot of information. So people, I think, are in the, in the most are what we call sticky consumers. They tend to stay with their existing service provider provider and only if there's a compelling reason would they change a service provider. And they are, I think, when it comes to recognising that they are operating in a sort of a private market, they are more likely to exercise their rights as a complainant and, and make complaints. Jonathan. My experience through my clients is that most of my clients are finding that their clients, um, the NDIS participants, are, as Jared says, sticky clients and there is a very strong incumbency factor. They are certainly finding that, particularly given the amount of uncertainty and change with the NDIS itself, that it is comforting to be working with an organisation that they recognise as well as people that they recognise. So I think it's still too early to see the rise in the complaints that may flow um, from the introduction of the NDIS. He's hoping we can avoid that outcome to the extent that that's possible. I wonder if we might turn now to some of the common pitfalls faced by disability service providers in their efforts to comply with Victorian consumer law. 
Jonathan, I wonder if you could tell us about some of these pitfalls for service providers and how they can be avoided. Yeah, so so we've talked a little bit about the the marketing material. We've also talked a little bit about the sign-up process and and some of the unfair contract terms. So I think the remaining pitfall is probably going to relate to the actual delivery, the operation. It's one thing to get a service agreement right and to get all the marketing material right to say what you're going to do, but the important thing is to actually deliver on, on what you've promised to do. And the one pitfall that I think is likely to become an issue is around promises to help participants to you know, fulfil their plans and fulfil their goals in accordance with their NDIS plan. And I think it's very easy to make promises along those lines, not to be able to objectively fulfil them. And in many cases, whether or not you can, for example, help a client to gain the independence to travel on a bus by themselves or visit the supermarket by themselves is not necessarily going to be a function just of the service provider and their skill, but also the participant. So I think it's important that providers set expectations clearly in terms of what service they're providing and what the likely outcome of that service is going to be. Yeah, I think I'd agree. It's really important that you are honest and upfront about what you are offering and not over-promising. Mm-hmm. But I also, coming back to the point about marketing, I think there can be a tendency in businesses to, as Jonathan said, to put their best foot forward. So, for example, using testimonials. Now, that testimonials are a fine way to market, but they've got to be honest and true, and they've got to tell the full story. They can't just sort of be cherry-picked for the best line as possible. Otherwise, you might find yourself leaving a misleading impression. Or another area that I'm already aware of seeing, a provider sort of putting a stamp, I'm NDIA approved or something like that, just because they're a registered provider. I mean, I don't think a registered provider necessarily should put something ahead in, in the client's mind just because they're a registered provider. People can leave a misleading perception. They might think that they're a five-star provider because of just that fact. So those sort of statements when people do do marketing really need to be carefully thought out so they're not leaving that misleading impression. Certainly a challenging space. I'd agree with those comments entirely. Okay, well, I do like unanimity when we hear it. That's great. So what are some of the risks and associated penalties with not complying with consumer law, Jonathan? I wonder if I might ask you first. So the big stick, I think I would call it, that the ACCC wields is going to be the penalty provisions. As at the day we're recording this podcast, the penalty for corporations is $1.1 million and the penalty for individuals is $220,000. Now, there are currently proposals before the Commonwealth Parliament to amend those and increase those to higher levels that are reflective of the higher penalties under the Competition Act provisions of the Corporations Act. In terms of the proposed penalties, the higher proposed penalties will be the greater of $10 million or three times the benefit of the value received. But if the courts can't calculate that, it will be up to 10% of the annual turnover of the organisation in the preceding 12 months. So those are hefty, hefty penalties. So at the risk of getting into an area with which I'm not particularly familiar, but based upon what you're saying, Jonathan, scenario... An NDIS participant comes to a particular provider or decides to use a particular provider and they bring with them a $150,000 package. They decide to go to that provider by reason of the fact that that provider has warranted that they will achieve certain outcomes which on any assessment they're unable to achieve. 
in those circumstances, is the provider potentially liable for fines of $10 million rather than $450,000? Is that... I'm just trying to work out the calculation. Uh, yeah, so under the proposed new laws, yeah. the greater of those amounts. So, so it's $10 million rather so than So it's likely to be $10 million, yeah, just by virtue of this. So by virtue of the likely size of most disability organisations, I mean, there are some larger disability organisations, but, but based on the typical turnover and the typical loss that for a typical package, I think you'd be looking at the $10 million figure. And, Jared, to the extent that we understand what that process might look like, because I wouldn't imagine there have been any cases of it yet, I'd hope not, but based upon your experience in other sectors, what's the impact of a process like this when it commences on the client? Well, uh, court action by a regulator is pretty rare in any market, is the first thing I'd say. I think every year the HBC takes between 60 to 80 court actions and they're going to cover all sorts of markets across Australia, not just disability services. But that doesn't mean the regulator does nothing. A regulator will receive complaints from the community and will investigate those complaints. They may uh, write to providers and remind them about their legal obligations. They might come to some other sort of administrative arrangement like a undertaking that requiring the business to, to change its service agreement or to change its marketing strategy to prevent that sort of harm in the future. So there's actually a range of enforcement mechanisms that the regulators can take and they probably are unlikely to jump first to the court case and, and seeking $10 million fines. But Jonathan's right, that that is, that is the maximum that they can obtain. I mean, for individuals, it's actually very difficult when, uh, to make these sort of complaints. I'm aware that people are making complaints to regulators and then they don't hear anything back. They don't know what's going on. So it can be a very confused process for the average consumer to make complaints. And, and But I think it's still important that if people are dissatisfied with their provider, that they are aware of the avenues, which include the dispute resolution services, as well as the regulators to make those complaints because it's only those, if those things work well, it not only benefits the participants themselves, but it also benefits the providers in the marketplace that are doing the right thing and are complying with consumer law. Would there be any examples of dispute resolution processes in Australia that you'd point to as offering an exemplary approach to dispute resolution in other sectors? Yeah, I, I think that um, with uh, deregulated markets, it's actually important to have a, a separate enforcement airing, enforcing the law from dispute resolution because they're quite different things. So, for example, in uh, another area I work a lot in is around electricity and gas. Again, uh, it used to be a service that was delivered directly by the government and then was opened up to private service provision. So in that area, we have the Energy and Water Ombudsmans in each state. And they're a, a forum that's free. Uh, they're very accessible. You can call them on the phone or go on the internet. You don't have to go go anywhere to make a complaint. And they're also required to follow an, um, a range of uh, steps to ensure that their processes are fair, independent and effective. Importantly, those sort of ombudsman mechanisms take steps to provide feedback to the relevant industry to in terms of systemic issues or complaint trends that helps that industry improve over time and improve their service proposition. So I'm not yet sure exactly how this is going to work in the disability services environment. There is announcements of the new Safeguards Commission, which may have this dispute resolution function, but I think that that's not entirely settled yet how that will work in in the NDIS arrangements. I wonder if I can sort of jump in, David, and and make note that we're talking about a 
I mean, it's not deregulated in the true sense, but it's it's certainly freer and more open than it was previously. Just reflecting on the working arrangements between providers, recognising that under block funding models, you may have had some providers working in regional areas and, and sort of saying to each other, look, I'll, I'll look after this client cohort, you look after that client cohort, or I'll do this service, you do that service. If I get someone looking for respite, I'll, I'll send them your way or vice versa. Is that kind of environment still applicable? Is that still possible under the open market, as, as we may call it? Or, or are there uh, certain restrictions or limitations that, that providers need to be aware of in that context in terms of their relationships? So to answer your question, it's actually the competition part of the competition and consumer law that regulates that type of behaviour. And there have been recent amendments to these restrictions which effectively prevent organisations from entering into contracts, arrangements or understandings that restrict competition. So that type of market sharing, market slicing you know, concerted arrangements to potentially exclude other competitors is potentially all behaviour that could be problematic under the Competition and Consumer Act. And you would need to be very, very careful about whether those arrangements are in breach. And that's not to say that you can't have, for example, you know, referral arrangements in place and, and other arrangements where you can't provide the service. But, but certainly the idea of um, sharing geographic regions or slicing regions and not competing with other providers is potentially very risky. See, I find that fascinating because, of course, one of the challenges we face under the NDIS in its early stages is the um, challenge of thin markets. In regional Victoria, it would not be uncommon. In remote parts of Australia, it would be very common for there not to be more than one or two providers in that part of the world. And equally common, actually, would be an arrangement whereby one provider might say, look, we'll specialise in this area, you specialise in that area, rather than us trying to pretend that we can do everything really well. Mm. Would that scenario render both parties potentially capable of being prosecuted by the ACCC? So particularly in services markets where a lot of disability supports are provided on a personal basis, the ACCC and the competition approach is to look at the geographic market that would be served and whether or not you're likely to have competition within that geographic market. So if you do have a rural town which only has maybe one or two providers and a lack of competition, then that actually, even though it might be a very small business or a small organisation, that might actually elevate you to the point where under competition law, you have potentially substantial effect on competition in the market for those disability services or related specialist or other disability services that you don't provide. And I suppose on the other side of the coin, we'd be expecting the scenario whereby a large, well-resourced provider rocks into town and starts running loss leaders in order to eliminate the competition. We would, by definition, be expecting the ACCC to take a dim view of that. And that's right. So the converse scenario is a big new player entering to the market instead of charging closer to the or just under the price guideline to try and undercut competition in a particular area for a sustained period of time, such as to drive the the local players out of the market. And then once those local players have disappeared, to prop the price back up to the NDIA price guide. That type of behaviour is certainly not permitted under the Competition and Consumer Act. So... Recognising that the NDIA um, is very strong on its view that the NDIA pricing framework provides maximum 
prices and they they do really encourage participants to negotiate and have a bit of a voice and a say in what the prices actually are. How is that determined then by the ACCC that undercutting is occurring? Is it about the intent? Is it about the outcome? How, how do they make that decision? Because certainly some providers and, and perhaps some larger providers are able to offer a cheaper service. And, you know, in an open market, I might make my decision on, on the basis of the cheaper price. And, and certainly it's, it's possible to charge a cheaper price than your competitors. But at what point does that become an issue? Yeah, it's a, it's a very complex assessment that you would need to make on a case-by-case basis. I, I see Jared nodding his head. I think certainly those in this year would be there and you would need to be very careful. I mean, if I take the bread example, if you're selling five cents bread or five cents per litre milk, that's clearly going to be an obvious case of undercutting. But something that's a bit more subtle than that is obviously much more complicated because, as you say, it depends on the service model that's provided by the organisation, the extent of cross-subsidisation, the extent to which they want to bear losses. The competition law can allow for both intent as well as effect. So you could inadvertently, if you have market power, potentially breach the Competition Act by doing those types of lower fees. And if a, if a service provider is concerned that something like this is happening in their region or concerned that a, another provider is trying to undercut them or, or sort of take hold of their market unfairly, what can they do? How can they sort of raise their concerns? Who do they speak to? I would encourage them to speak to a lawyer and then contemplate contacting the um, ACCC. Interesting order you've got there, um, Jonathan. So speak to a lawyer first and then the ACCC. Yeah, because... What's the rationale for that? So the rationale for that is that ultimately most organisations are unlikely to have the resources needed to prosecute a competition law case. So if you acknowledge that then it's important if you are making a claim or or a complaint to the regulator to put your best foot forward so that the regulator takes, sits up, takes notice, has all the information that they need in order to actually assess that there is a competition issue there for them to then start their process using the ACCC's resources. And Jared, although we're talking about providers rather than individual clients, can providers nevertheless avail themselves of the services of the Consumer Action Law Centre in this in this sort of scenario? Unfortunately not. At the Consumer Action Law Centre, we provide advice and assistance to consumers, but also others that might be supporting consumers. There could be community workers um, or people, you know, like the local area coordinators that are funded as part of the NDIS or others that see something that they're concerned concerned about or what, just curious about their consumer rights, they'd be very welcome to contact a centre like ours and try and find out a bit of information. But we do not provide advice and assistance to providers. So in that scenario, say a support worker is supporting someone, has a reasonably close relationship with mm. the participant and the, the participant is looking to engage with a just a different provider for a different service and the support worker has concerns that that provider is not maintaining compliance under, under consumer law, would that support worker be able to avail themselves, you know, obviously having that discussion with, with the participant about their concerns, but would they be able to raise their concerns as well with yourselves recognising that some participants don't have capacity or in those scenarios, I suppose, can providers who have concerns around poor practice from providers, can they? 
Yeah, well, I mean, we do not provide advice to providers, I should say that up front, but if there's a, a sort of an independent advocate or a, or a carer or, or a relative that's working with the participant, um, we would definitely welcome all the participants themselves contacting us if they have any concerns about either the consumer protection implications or perhaps competition implications and, and getting advice for us. I should say that our service only provides advice to Victorians and there are different services in other states. So I want to turn now to talking about transparency and accessibility of consumer law. Jonathan, how can providers increase transparency about the law vis-à-vis their clients and their potential clients? So the first thing I would suggest is that they should certainly be encouraging and pointing their clients towards the material published by the ACCC. We discussed earlier in the podcast that there is guidance that's provided for businesses, but there is also equivalent guidance that's provided for individuals that is relatively accessible. Uh, The second thing I would encourage disability service providers to do would be to make sure that their agreements are in, you know, in terms of transparency, are in a large legible font. So certainly at least 10 point font, preferably larger if possible. And that it's also accompanied by an easy English glide and that you take steps to actually walk through the contract to satisfy yourself that the participant understands it. And that includes things such as leaving copies, giving them an opportunity to read the material, encouraging them to get help or advice from their uh, support person or their nominees, or encouraging them to seek advice from the NDIA or from other consumer centres before you sign them up. And if you have any doubts about that, it would be better to to investigate those before the sign-up process rather than plough along. And I thought it was amusing that you asked the question, uh, David, about uh, whether or not you take people on face value about whether or not they're authorised, because I think that is still a major issue with the signing up of services agreements. You might be dealing with a, a parent or a guardian or a plan nominee to sign up the participant. They may give many excuses as to why you might never ever be able to speak directly with the participant before you're engaged. But those are very difficult issues to deal with about whether or not the participant, the the actual person receiving the services, actually has agreed to the services. And by the way you're talking, Jonathan, I'm assuming that these situations aren't that uncommon at this early stage and represent a potential challenge for the for the sector. That's right. And and if we go back to the unfair contracts issue and the for example the misleading and deceptive conduct issue, the misleading and deceptive conduct or the misrepresentations could be made at not just to the participant but to their carer or their or anyone else that's been involved in the process. So you're actually opening yourself up to many points. And then similarly if you proceed on the assumption that there is agreement, but it turns out that a carer or a guardian has signed, but the guardian hasn't actually obtained informed consent from the participant they're acting for, then the service provider gets left in a difficult legal situation. I wonder, Jonathan, if I can, and also Jared as well, if I can sort of ask you to provide some advice to listeners now in relation to one issue that that came up in particular for providers in the last financial year and this financial year is how do providers ensure that they are being transparent and complying with consumer law when prices change? 
So this is, again, a very difficult question, and even at this very early stage has already been an issue that's already been encountered by some of our clients. It boils down to the question of whether or not your agreement with the participant is for a stated price or whether or not the participant understands that the agreement is for a price as adjusted by the NDIA, but that it happens that the current price is $50 or $100. And unfortunately, I've seen service agreements that don't make that clear. And and certainly from a transparency, unfair contracts perspective, this is a very fundamentally important issue. So if your agreements are muddy or there's a little asterisk at the bottom or there are some terms and conditions at the back that talk about your ability to change the prices, it might not be that clear to the participant that they've signed up to a price that will increase and that the fees will increase on 1 July or whenever the price guides are changing. So it's absolutely important that you make that clear in the agreements that you ask uh, your participant to sign and to make sure that the participant understands when you go through the supports and the pricing, that they understand that that price as a service provider, you want that price to be able to change as the maximum increases. And would you assume, you know, if the prices do change, recognising, you know, we all pay bills, when, when my energy company tells me it's going to increase my bills, it provides me with the time frame to withdraw my service. It, it sort of provides me with notice of those changes that are due to come. Is that also the same for, for disability service providers? I mean, I would agree that it'd be really good practice if prices are going to change. And that's been agreed to in the service agreement already to still inform um, the, the person uh, prior to that happening. I think if, they, if their service agreement does clearly state and the person clearly understands the prices will increase, you don't have to give them a right to opt out unless the contract provides for that or the service agreement provides for that. Keeping them informed as much as possible will be an effective way to dissuade those sort of complaints arising. You could you could also, I mean, recognising the, the unique funding structure of the NDIS, you could always ask your clients whether or not they are willing to consent. They'd have to be absolutely clear that they understand why you're asking for the change and the fact that it will affect their plan, but that perhaps the NDIS will in turn also be giving them more money in their plan so that there's no extra money out of pocket. But it's certainly something that you would have to ask and it's certainly not something that you could force upon your clients. And I think there are major reputational and legal risks of forcing those changes. So long story short, basically have a clause in the service agreement which gives you the ability to increase the price commensurate with any price increases announced by the NDIS. And make sure that your NDIS participant understands what that means. And that's always going to be where the rubber hits the road in terms of where disputes are, I imagine. Making sure that that person with disability who in many cases will have a cognitive disability actually understands sufficiently or their their support network understands sufficiently what's happening. Yeah, that's right. I think that that's going to be a really significant challenge for providers Mm. in this new marketplace is to be working with participants so that they do understand what they're signing up for and that the participant has has rights when it comes to things not working out as they expected. So in, in order to support the human rights of people with disability in this new space, in this space of consumer driven care and support, How can we go about as a sector making the documents which pertain to consumer law rights as accessible as possible? And I'm asking both of you this, and if you've got particular examples to draw upon, really good examples of accessibility, 
we'd be really keen to hear them. So I think I applaud the NDIA for doing the work to not only produce the model services agreement, but to do the easy English guide to the services agreement. I do think it is a challenge, though, as you say, if small, smaller and even larger disability organisations don't have the resources to easy English all their material, it is quite a an expensive and time-consuming process, then then it's almost incumbent on, on peak bodies to, to try and lead that work and try and share that work. Yes. I do think, I think the test for the provider is to ask whether or not the provider has both a services agreement as well as an easy English version of the services agreement. And I think if they answered yes to that, I think they would be a good choice. I might, David, throw just another scenario in for us to sort of play with, uh, just recognising that the the contract terms are not the only thing within consumer law. You know, a little bit about coercion and I can't say the word for the life of me. Unconscionable. That's correct. (laughs) It's a tricky one. So if a provider, say, was negotiating services with a participant and, and sort of said, look, We'll take you on and and give you personal care supports, but for it to be viable, we actually can only take you on if you also accept some community access supports as well. How does that sit in the space of consumer law? I should say at this point, for those, and no one can see what's going on in the studio, both of the guys basically (laughs) breathed heavily, looked at each other and started sighing again. So please, someone will give us a black and white answer, I'm sure. Who'd like to start? I think the answer is that it is certainly at risk of being unconscionable. I think the the classic example that I was actually going to refer to in terms of unconscionable conduct would be if the NDIS price guide says that it's, you know, $50 in an hour to deliver X support, would the community and would the regulators think that it is appropriate for a self-managed participant to take that service on at $500 an hour. I think everyone would accept that would be just horrendously unconscionable and price gouging because that wouldn't reflect the nature of the service. So that's black and white. But on the other hand, the issue of whether or not you're almost bundling a service is potentially very tricky. If I were the ACCC, the first thing I would ask a provider if they made those kinds of statements to clients would be to say, substantiate how this is actually the case. Show me the numbers that actually prove that it is such a horrendous loss leader for you that it only works if you take both service A and service B. And I would suspect that in response to that, you would find that providers would have difficulty demonstrating those numbers. Yeah, I I think that with respect, I think that's to be tested. I mean, for example, there are certain elements of the pricing guide, support independent living, for example, where the prices are proving to be pretty reasonable. There are other elements of the pricing guide where the prices are proving to be anything but. And um, we know of some providers who are, even as we speak, looking at moving out of some particular cohorts of service because the price simply doesn't support them continuing in that space. But if we remember, David, that the NDIA takes the view that there should be contestability. So at the end of the day, contestability should trump that situation. 
you would think. Yes, you would think if, in fact, there was a basis for the contest, I suppose. Yeah. In that scenario, I'd almost at the risk of the, the, the damage that that could occasion to the individual NDI's participants, I would almost rather see the withdrawal from those markets so that the NDIA would recognise that there is a need to increase the price to reflect the true market value of delivering those services. Well, a very impressive form of legal purity, if you don't mind my saying. That's great. Okay, Jared. Oh, look, I'd agree. I, I think there are, are real risks with the situation you describe. And I guess bundling services together does create difficulties for consumers, even where it doesn't breach consumer law. It creates difficulties when, um, for example, this system is about encouraging choice. It isn't encouraging people to use their power as a consumer to choose the services or the service provider that they want. And when services are bundled, it can be very difficult to do that because you mightn't be able to unbundle them. Jonathan, you raised a really interesting point earlier, which I'd like to explore in a little bit more detail, just in relation to self-managing participants. And it's something that's of great interest of mine, just to understand, I suppose, how consumer law applies in in scenarios where recognising that uh, registered providers and unregistered providers are able to charge self-managing participants essentially whatever they like. A registered service provider will be delivering services both to self-managing, plan-managed and, and NDI-registered managed participants. How, how does consumer law sort of fit in into this space where a provider may be charging an NDIA-managed participant that maximum price, but a self-managing participant's more than that maximum price. Is there a bit of a gradient in terms of at what point does it become an issue or is it an issue at the very start? Well, I'm happy to jump in that one. I mean, the consumer law applies whichever sort of participant you are, whether it's plan-managed or registered through a registered provider or through self-managed, the consumer law provides equally. I think your question was going to whether they are charging one group of customers more than another group. Unfortunately, at the moment, that's not necessarily in breach of the consumer law, unless you were somehow misleading people about that. So you said the general price is this, but yet you're charging them a higher amount, then that may be in breach of the consumer law because you're engaging in misleading conduct. But if you were quite clear up front that that was your practice, unless there was some other reason that said that you were taking advantage of their their lack of understanding that it might be unconscionable conduct, I, I don't think it is in breach of the law. There were two additional things that I wanted to add. So the first thing was around just there are consumer law provisions around single pricing. A lot of this was targeted particularly at the airlines, for example, trip feeding pricing. But if you're going to be publishing prices, the expectation is that you have a single price. So I would wonder of the reputational impact if you were publishing a price list where you said, if you're plan managed, this is the price. If you're self-managed, this is the price. Because you would need to go to that level of detail in order to comply with the single single pricing requirements. And then the second issue, um, which I think I alluded to earlier, was uh, around um, unconscionable conduct. I do think there is a risk that you're effectively saying that you're taking advantage of your legal power to charge a higher amount. Whether it gets to the point where it's unconscionable conduct is a, or obviously going to be a very difficult question and will depend on the individual participant that's involved. 
but I, I think this will probably become a system-wide issue that the NDIA will take up and whichever provider decides to push the boundaries on this is most likely to be in the scope as the test organisation to do that. Uh, for example, we've seen in the, um, in the aged care sector some recent court decisions around whether or not you can claim both the residential aged care subsidy plus an additional amount for additional services for higher end accommodation and the courts seem to be taking the view that they don't think that's appropriate. It wouldn't surprise me if this this area becomes ripe for future litigation by the ACCC. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> great. Well, if nothing else, this conversation has convinced me of the complexity of the field um, when it comes to the application of consumer law under the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So I just wanted to conclude by asking both of you pretty much the same question from your different perspectives. Jonathan, what supports are available for providers to ensure they are complying with consumer law? And where should they direct their queries? This is a, an opportunity for Craven self-promotion, should you wish. Oh, thank you. I wasn't expecting the opportunity to, uh, to do self-promotion, so I'll just talk in generics. Okay. Um, obviously, your first port of call is your internal colleagues. There are often a lot of internal resources um, and people that might have different hats and might have some legal training that might be able to help you. I would then go to the um, NDS. If the NDS can't help you, they could suggest or put you in touch with other lawyers. I certainly would be happy to put myself forward. I don't think the ACCC is going to be particularly helpful from the service provider perspective um, because they will simply tell you to go and get legal advice. And similarly with the NDIA, they're, they're most likely to send, send the service provider away and to get legal advice. So unfortunately, that means that my suggestion is that you get legal advice. Okay, fair enough. So, Jared, what supports are available for participants so they know their rights? Where should they direct their queries? The first instance to get to know your consumer rights is the fair trading officers in your state or going to the HCC, which is obviously the national body. They have call centres available to speak to people and inform them of their consumer rights. There are also, of course, uh, community legal centres and legal aid commissions that provide drop-in or advice services that people would get some information from, including my centre, the Consumer Action Law Centre, and the self-promotion again, where people can call us and and get some advice over the phone. So that brings us to the end of this month's program. Um, If nothing else, I think the conversation proved how complex this area is and has the potential to be under the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So I want to thank our guests for your time today. Our pleasure. Great to be here. Excellent. Good stuff. And great to hear from you too, Pascal, lest (laughs) we forget. We'll see you all next time. Thank you. If you've got questions about the NDIS or Disability Employment Matters, you can visit our new NDS Help Desk at nds.org.au forward slash helpdesk. NDS has produced a range of resources to assist Victorian service providers navigating NDIS operations for their business. Head to nds.org.au forward slash sdp to visit our NDIS sector development project website where you can access valuable information and resources in our NDIS resource library, find podcast show notes, access our free online 24-7 NDIS help desk, subscribe to our monthly e-newsletter and find information and registration links for our NDIS readiness and implementation workshops, which we host right around Victoria in regions currently undergoing NDIS transformation. That's nds.org.au forward slash sdp.
The Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services. Copyright 2018. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package. 